the book of Ephesians. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand. The ushers are walking down the aisles and they'll give you one. And if you don't have a Bible, make that your own. Bring it back with you next time you come. And we're in Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll be picking up in verse 17. The true story is told of a preacher who, this is back, you know, a hundred or so years, who had a a little bit of a, a love affair with a little bit of wine. He wasn't a drunk, but he had that secret longing from time to time. And it came to pass on a particular holiday, Thanksgiving, that he enjoyed the Thanksgiving meal and his guests went home and his children, he believed, were tucked into bed. And he made his way downstairs and out the front door and down the street walking through the snow. And he was on his way to the local wine store there and he was going to get himself just a little bit of wine to enjoy that night with his wife. And as he went, he heard something behind him. And so he turned around and he saw his son, whom he had thought was tucked into bed, was there in his pajamas. And he was leaping from the the, the footprint that his father had left in the snow to the the, the one in front of it. And he was kind of jumping and and trying to land in those, those, you know, giant size 11s or whatever they were. And so the father turns around and he says, son, what are you doing? You're supposed to be in bed. And he looked at his dad with a big smile on his face, and he said, I'm just following in your footsteps, Dad. And immediately it convicted that preacher as he thought where he was going and what his son was doing, and he realized, yes, he is going to follow in my footsteps, isn't he? Well, here we find ourselves in this section of Ephesians that deals with the walk of the believer, or the footsteps that we take as Christians in this world as followers of Christ. Paul began this chapter by telling us that we're to walk in unity. We looked at that last week, that we are all members of each other. We're linked together. And that the health of each one of us individually directly affects the health of the entire body as a whole. And therefore, the way that we walk matters. The way that we conduct our lives is going to make a difference in how somebody else conducts theirs. And therefore, we are not only to walk in unity, but because we are walking in unity, it requires that we also must walk in holiness. And thus Paul begins right here in verse 17, and he says, This I say, therefore. Now, we've already dealt with this word, therefore, several times in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And whenever you see the word, therefore, you have to ask, what's it there for? And therefore, always ties what he is about to say to what he has just said. And what did he just say? He just told us that we are so closely linked with one another that it is imperative that we keep that in mind 
in everything else that we do. In light of the fact that every part of this body affects every other part of this body, then that makes it all the more critical how we walk or how we conduct our lives because how we live is going to affect the way somebody else lives. And where Paul is going as he moves on from that and into these next few verses is he's telling us that because we are Christians, our lives are supposed to look different than they did before we were believers in Jesus Christ. And it is supposed to look different than those that don't know Jesus Christ that are still walking out in the world. Unfortunately, we live in an age when it means very little to be called Christian. There's very little distinction between those that are in the church of Christ that bear his name and those that are out in the world that don't know Jesus Christ at all. And from verse 17 and on clear into the middle of chapter 5 somewhere, the Apostle Paul is going to give us a contrast. A contrast between what we are by nature, that is, Gentiles, apart from Christ, fallen beings, and what we are in Christ, that is, Christians, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, saved, sealed, and sanctified by Him and by His Spirit. A contrast between how we used to behave when we were in our flesh, and how we are to behave, not so that we can earn Christ, but because we have Christ. What we were versus how we are. And so he begins in verse 17, he says, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth, or you might have no longer in your translation, that you no longer walk as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of your mind. And then he goes on from there to describe what that means. And he gives to us in this section eight characteristics of the Gentile mind or the the mind of the unbeliever in order to highlight for us what we were and what we are no longer to be now that we are Christians. In this section that Paul gives between verses 17 and verse 19, gives to us the most detailed and accurate description of mankind apart from Christ in all of the Bible. He begins by telling us concerning this Gentile mind that he says that you walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, verse 17. The word vanity there means futile, or empty, or aimless. And it gives to us the idea that the Gentile, the person that is apart from Christ, is just meandering along. They have no direction in their life, no purpose, no destination. They have no sense of understanding why they exist, no knowledge of the purpose of life. They just live a meaningless existence that accomplishes nothing. It's aimless. And what this means is to not know the aim of life. What are we aiming at? What is the purpose of life? And that's something that everybody is trying to figure out. What is the aim of life? What is life all about? What is its purpose? And if somebody doesn't know the aim of life or what the purpose of life is, then they are living an aimless life. 
And that person is left to follow their lusts and their desires to try to figure it out. To just follow the whims of their imagination, whatever it is in their mind that they think the purpose of life might be, that they would give themselves to that. That person becomes a sucker for every idea and every ideal and every philosophy and book and everything that comes along in their life that somehow lends itself to say that this is the purpose of life and they'll just follow it. And so they'll go down this path for two years and, and, or maybe this path for three years and this path for ten years or this path for forty years only to find at the end of it that that wasn't the aim or the purpose of life at all. It's gone. So what is the purpose of life? What is the aim of life? We see the Apostle John in heaven. He's there before the throne of God in the fourth chapter of Revelation. He tells us that the living creatures and the 24 elders, they fall on their faces and they cast their crowns before Him that is on the throne. And in verse 11 they say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. That is the intended aim of our lives. That our lives would be lived to bring him pleasure. That is the purpose of life. And until our lives are engaged in that for which they were intended, life for us is going to be empty. It's going to be aimless, and it's not going to make any sense. I mean, look around the world, and what, what do we see? Is the meaning of life really just to see who can have the most houses? Or who can have the best or the most land? Or who can watch the most movies, or listen to the most music, or have the most possessions, or make the most money, or be in the most relationships? Is that, is that really what life is all about? You know, I, I wonder what my life would look like if God hadn't saved me. I thank God for how he put so many Christians in my path when, when I was at that, that stage of life, when I was trying to figure, figure it all out, you know, going through high school and following these, these aimless paths. And person after person would share with me the gospel and tell me about Jesus Christ and explain to me the purpose of life. But I was smarter than they were, smarter than all of that, you know. And so I was going to go my own way. But if it hadn't been for that, and if when I hit bottom and realized that it can't get any emptier than this, if it wasn't for them and that I didn't know where to turn because I hadn't been told what the purpose of life is, I can't imagine what my life would be like today. I understand why people just go berserk. Why people just fly off the deep end and, and do completely irrational things. Because if life really is as empty as it is for the person that doesn't know Christ, then what is the purpose of doing what's right or doing anything that's normal or sane? I might as well just get this thing over as soon as possible because there's no aim. I think of Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. The man who had unlimited means to do and accomplish whatever he wanted and he gave himself to everything that his heart desired he had over a thousand concubines and wives he gave himself to building projects and building gardens and you know expanding land and accumulating wealth and establishing a legacy for himself so that his name would never perish from off of the earth 
And yet, no matter what it was that he gave himself to, he tells us himself, he says that all of that was vanity and vexation of spirit. It was aimless, and it was a chasing after the wind. That when I went to grab hold of what it was and clutch my hands around what the meaning was, there was nothing in my hands but air. And he tells us the conclusion of all that he came to, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, 13, is that the answer is found in a personal, obedient relationship with God. That's the only place where the purpose and meaning of life can be found is in that relationship with God. And if you're here tonight and you're on shaky ground in your quest to find the meaning of life, This is the meaning. It's to know Him and to live to bring Him glory and to bring Him pleasure. And until you come to that place where that's what your life is being spent upon, life is going to continue to be meaningless and empty. But once you do, you'll find the most satisfying and rich life that can ever be lived on this earth. He tells us that they walk in the vanity of their mind. The second thing he tells us about the Gentile mind or the person apart from Christ is that their understanding is darkened. Look at verse 18. He says, having the understanding darkened. That word understanding, it's an interesting word. It means the thinking through or the thinking over. It is the faculty of understanding. And what Paul is saying is that the Gentile world having left God out of their thoughts, can never bring its thinking to its proper conclusion. They can have tremendous knowledge. They can have incredible understanding and ability to think and reason. But without God, they'll never have the ability to bring it to its proper conclusion or application. And man has this incredible ability to accumulate knowledge, even without God. But without God's word, and without the moral compass that God gives, and without the base of what the Bible gives to us, man lacks the wisdom to properly apply that knowledge. And ultimately, it gets applied for darkness. Think about the tremendous things that man has been able to accomplish. The medical breakthroughs. You walk through a hospital and you see the machines and they have a machine that can do this and a treatment that can take care of that and a drug or a a pill that can do this. And, And you go through all of that and you think, well, how did we get here, this place of medical advancement? But yet without God's spirit and God's word and God's boundaries that he places to keep those things safe, they're used to kill babies in the womb. They're used to bring people into bondage and into addiction to cause them to become uh, dependent upon the companies that produce medicines and drugs. Because apart from God, the knowledge doesn't reach its proper conclusion. It's given over to darkness. Think of the technological advancements of man. I mean, we go and we turn on our computer and just to... to, None of us, I, I would venture, really even understand how that works. You go and you turn on the computer and what's happening in there is you start to see lights flash and hear the fan turn and and, and all of that and you watch what's coming across the screen. You see those letters just come up for a minute and they're gone. And next thing you know, you're on the internet. 
How in the world did man develop an internet? What is an internet? That you can turn on your computer and in three minutes, you can be looking through a library in a university in Siberia. How is that possible? But yet without God's word, without God's Holy Spirit, without the boundaries that the Bible gives, those things are inevitably going to be given to darkness. And the internet turns into the web that it has become. And someone stumbles onto pornography. They become addicted to it. The chemical grip that it can grab upon a man or upon a woman. They find themselves in a place on a social network where they're making contact with someone that they shouldn't be making contact with. And the number of marriages that are broken up, families that are devastated, children that will be spun off into some place where they never should have been in their mind and in their heart. Because that which could have been brought to something of good use, the understanding is darkened and ultimately it's applied for evil. And there's people that have been given great, incredible abilities by God. Knowledge and capacity and understanding. But yet, without the knowledge of God, without the light of His Word and the presence of His Spirit, you see what it does to them. And it's incredible that somehow, everything that man does, no matter how brilliant it is, somehow it gets hijacked by the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And it's corrupted. The world today possesses great knowledge, but they lack the wisdom to properly apply it. One writer said, in the world today, we have improved means, but not improved ends. And apart from God, understanding is darkened. The third thing that Paul tells us there in verse 18 is that mankind apart from Christ is alienated from the life of God. And it speaks concerning the attitude that an unbeliever takes towards the things of God. You know, it's interesting, if you were to encounter an alien, you know, you go out for a walk in the evening, and you're by yourself and unsuspecting, and all of a sudden you encounter an alien creature. You know, as sci-fi as you can imagine it in your mind. Scales, and slime, and smell, you know, and noise, and and just everything that you have never seen, and, and what you could never have comprehended that you would be embracing in that moment as you see it, what would you feel like? You would be very uncomfortable, to say the least. It's unfamiliar to you. It doesn't make sense. There's a fear. What's it going to do? Is it going to slime me? Is it going to eat me? You know, what is what is going to happen because of this encounter? And and that's the word that Paul uses here when he talks about how the Gentile mind or the person apart from Christ views the things of God or the life of God, that they are aliens to it. And I remember what that was like, being a non-Christian. And I could be in the room with someone and we could be completely fine until I found out that they were a Christian. And then all of a sudden there was like this, whoa, I was really curious but yet I didn't understand them and wanted to keep them at a distance. You know, what's their thing? Are they going to witness to me? Are they going to slime me? You know, what are they going to do? You know, and, and there was this, this strangeness. I, I would go to church if I was invited, but I would sit there and I would feel like I was in the house of an alien. What am I doing here? 
I don't belong. These seats are not hard like what I grew up in. You know, why is it like this? And, and you get that feeling, this alienation, and it's a description of what the Gentile mind, how they view the life of God. They're alienated. They're cut off from it. They don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to them. He goes on, the fourth thing he tells us there in verse 18 is that they are ignorant. He says they're being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. They are ignorant concerning God. Now, whenever the Bible uses the word ignorant, it isn't in the same context that we use it in our language. You know, we think of someone that is ignorant and we attach consequence to it. Well, they're ignorant because they're misinformed. They, they don't know. Or they're ignorant because uh, by accident. They've never been you know, influenced or told about something. And so therefore they're ignorant just because by default they weren't told yet. That's not the way it means it when it uses the word ignorant in the Bible. When you see ignorant in the Bible, it is always willful ignorance. It's ignorance on purpose. The Apostle Peter wrote, and he said that they are willingly ignorant. 2 Peter chapter 3 Verse 5. And the thing that they are ignorant about is the most important thing in life. The very aim of what life is all about. They are ignorant. Now, it's not easy to go through an entire lifetime on this earth and to remain ignorant about God. You have to work at that. That doesn't happen by itself. You know, Psalm chapter 19 tells us that all of creation is preaching a message to us 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. That the sun in its course, in its circuit, that it's preaching a message. That the moon, the stars, that the plants and the trees, that everything that God has made is consistently giving to us a message. And if you look at that message or even just a little bit open your ears or open your eyes to what it's saying, they're saying there is a God. There is a God. There's a creator behind this creation. There is a designer behind this design. And it's the only logical conclusion. My wife got this video out of the library on factuals. We can't seem to get this word down with fractuals, whatever, factuals. It's, it's geometric measurements by which all of creation kind of, you know, kind of goes off of, whether it's a tree or whether it's an entire forest or whether it's a mountain range or, or anything that God has made down to the cells in our body and the way that we're, you know, the way that we grow. Everything in all of God's creation is made by this geometric concept of factuals as they, as they place it. And we were watching this hour-long special on how this was discovered and developed and, and, and then, you know, understood and expanded and then used by artists and every other medical thing to, 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 to help and to benefit. And yet it's incredible that they're, 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 they're showing all of this, this wisdom, so to speak, all of this knowledge, all of this, this creativity and this brilliance, this mathematical sense that all of it makes. And then this scientist in his, you know, cardigan sweater and, and his, you know, university setting with the textbooks in the background, he says, with bright eyes and smile on his face, he uses these words. He says, natural selection has hit upon a design. <laughs> what? He, you're, you're telling me 
that natural selection, a process of just taking a top and spinning it and just seeing what's going to happen, has developed the most complex mathematical equation that translates into everything that we understand in all of the universe? Wow, natural selection is amazing. But the Bible says that they're willingly ignorant. And not only the creation that God has made, but the Holy Spirit of God, the Bible tells us, works seven days a week, 365 days a year, with every single person that lives on the planet, trying to get them to the place where they will open their eyes and see the fact and the reality that there is a God in heaven that cares about what he has made. But they are willingly ignorant. Sometimes people think that they're smart because they don't believe in God. They think that, well, that's archaic, that's, you know, unintelligent or whatever, and they they pride themselves upon, you know, their intelligence and that they don't believe in God, that they are agnostic or whatever. But God doesn't see it that way. God looks at a person that doesn't believe in him, and he says that they are ignorant. I see an ignorant person. The fifth thing he tells us there at the end of verse 18 is that they have blindness of heart. The word blindness means a loss of sensation of any kind. A complete loss of sensation of any kind. To become numb, to become blind. The best way to look at this word blindness is callous. They've become calloused. Imagine that somebody, you know, they they go through their, their years in school and, you know, they finally graduate and they get their first job working as a laborer for a construction company. And they go out there and they're ready to grab the world by the horns, you know. And, and they, they get to the, the place and the guy says, Oh, you're going to dig these trenches, these lines for these, uh, you know, conduits or whatever. And here's your shovel. You want some gloves? And you say, No, I don't want any gloves. You don't need gloves. I know what I'm doing, you know. And, and that person, they start digging, you know. And, they, and 20 minutes into it, they're like, Oh, where's those gloves, you know. And, and the blisters start to come up on their hand and they're looking for band-aids. And by the end of the day, they got band-aids and then they got gloves. And it, And, you know, they're like, oh, man, because their hands are sensitive. They've never been exposed to that kind of agitation, that kind of, you know, exposure, that kind of labor before. But over time, calluses begin to develop. And you no longer need band-aids and gloves. You could work all day. You could work all week, all year, and you don't get a blister because now your hands have become callous. They're used to it. They've been so exposed and, and so roughed up by what they've done that they no longer need that. And calluses are fine for the hands of a laborer, but they're not so fine for the human heart. Because when the human heart becomes calloused, it becomes hardened. Here's how it works. A person will sit in a meeting like this and they'll hear the gospel of grace. They'll hear about the message of salvation that's in the person of Christ. And they'll hear the plea to come forward, to respond, to give their lives over to this God who loves them. To give themselves to the aim and the very purpose of life. 
But they sit and as their heart beats fast and, and they, they begin this internal wrestling match about, well, I, I, I know there's a God, I know there's something true, but I, I don't know any of these people and I'm certainly not going to st- stand forth or, or respond in their midst or anything. And, 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 and so you, 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 you suppress and you say, no, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. But then you come back or maybe a month or a year later, you hear that plea again. And the next time... You know, you say, well, I, I didn't stand up next last time and nothing really happened to me. And, you know, I'm still here. God didn't zap me or anything. And who really knows? And so, so the next time you don't stand up, but it gets a little bit easier. And eventually you come to the point where you're so familiar with maybe the message or the concept or the people or whatever that your heart has become calloused. You no longer respond to it. The, the message, it has no effect upon your life. It has no effect upon your heart. It speaks of the hardening of the heart. And he says that their hearts have become blinded because they're calloused to the things of God. Now, the first five of the things that Paul has given to us in verses 17 and 18 all deal with the mindset or the way the Gentile mind thinks apart from God. But as we move now into verse 19, it changes from how they think to how they behave. And because ultimately, how a person thinks is going to affect the way that they behave. It's no accident that with the removing of the Word of God and removing of the things of God from American society, the result of that has been a skyrocketing of sin. Sexual sin, the proliferation and embracing of homosexuality and transsexuality and, and everything under the sun, since the, 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 the barriers of God have been removed, all manner of sin has just been let loose to become whatever it will become. And the problem with that is that once you remove God's word and, the inf, uh, you know, and his influence as the standard of acceptable behavior, you have to replace it with something. There has to be something that does what that did. There's an old saying that before you remove a wall, make sure you know why it was there. Because once you remove it, who knows what you're going to let in. And if God is removed, and fallen mankind then sets the standard for what's right and wrong, then what is the standard that's going to be put in place of it? Whatever fallen mankind wants. There'll be no boundaries. And once the desire of the flesh becomes the boundary, then you lose the authority to say no to anyone. Anything goes. If his flesh is telling him what he's doing is okay, then what my flesh is telling me to do is okay, and nobody has any right to tell me that it's not. You read in the news that just this week, a Ninth Circuit judge has ordered that Proposition 8 in California is unconstitutional. That is the, 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 the banning of gay marriage, a homosexual marriage. That is no longer considered constitutional, that we're to embrace that as a society, that we're to be tolerant, and that's the word, tolerant of it. I read just this morning about colleges and universities that sell Plan B, the morning-after pill, in vending machines in their common cafeteria areas to make it readily available just in case, because God forbid. My father was telling me just last night on the phone that in the city of Rochester, they are now handing out, not making available, but they are handing out condoms in the grammar schools and in the high schools. 
Because the problem of sexually transmitted diseases has become so, such an issue, such a problem, that it's the only thing that they can do to try to stop the problem. And so they're just handing these things out to these, these kids. Perhaps you read just this week about the young girl who killed a nine-year-old girl and she stood before a court of people and she said, I actually find killing to be something quite enjoyable. And we are on a deep moral slide as a country. We're in trouble because we've removed the boundaries of God's word. We've said, God, we're too smart for God. And so therefore, we've opened the door for whatever anybody wants to say is right and wrong. And we've lost our authority, our moral compass to say this is right and this is wrong because we've removed God. And we've become tolerant of everything. Tolerance is the thing. Oh, we need to be tolerant. We might not agree, but we need to be tolerant. We need to remain silent, and, and, and we need to sit down and just let people be who they are. Tolerance is the word. But the problem with that is that as the thinking changes, the living changes, and we're seeing the effects of it in our country, and it's even spilling over into the church. Notice with me number six in verse 19. It says, who being past feeling... It means that they don't feel shame anymore. That's what that means, the being past feeling. They no longer feel the pricks of conscience. What do people feel shame about anymore? I vividly remember growing up, and, and, and I thank God for this, but the schools that I went to and my parents, they instilled in me a fear of narcotics. And I don't know where it came from, but it was that was something that was always told to me. Is you just and and I got it. I was afraid. And I remember hitting that age where I started seeing my friends start to smoke pot and do different things, and it made me very uncomfortable because I was scared. My father, I remember, he pointed to the TV when Drew Barrymore was just a child and she was committed to the institution for being on drugs. And my father said, "You see what happens if you if you use drugs." And he would always show me those things. And so I had this fear when I'd see this going on around me. I remember it would wake me up at night, like the fear that I might do this someday. But eventually I came to that point sometime in my high school years. It was my senior year of high school. And at that point, you know, everybody's there, everybody's doing it, and I'm watching going on, and it got to me, and I did it. And I remember what that was like. I remember weeping to myself after I did that. I can't believe I did something that I, would, I said I would never do. I said I would never do that, and I did it. And I said, I'm never doing that again. I can't believe I did it. Next thing I know, and I'm, you know, going to be in the institution, you know, and all, all the rest. And, you know, and, and I'm never doing that again. And I remember being in that setting when I first did it. My heart was beating, everything in me, all the alarms and flags were going off, but I gave in to it. And it was probably only a week later that I found myself in that same setting, same situation again. But here's the problem. Is that the second time the battle was about half the intensity, so also was the shame that I felt afterwards that I had given into it. And a week later, I found myself doing it again. And before long, not only was there no longer a sense of a battle between do, you know, for doing it, but there was neither a sense of shame that I had given myself to that lifestyle. And what Paul is saying is that the Gentile mind, the person apart from Christ, 
will come to a point because of their ignorance, because of what they give themselves to, that they become, they are past feeling. They no longer feel the prick of conscience. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes and he says, Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy and having their conscience seared with a hot iron. That their conscience will become seared to the point where it no longer does the thing that God intended it to do, which was to be a barrier and a warning for you when you're walking in a way that will destroy your life. Now, if you put your hand on a stove and you feel the pain of that heat searing into your hand, you know, that's bad. You know, that pain that you feel, that's there to warn you to take your hand away. And the damage that is done when you sear your hand, that's bad. But how much worse is it when you sear your heart? When your heart becomes seared because you give in to the things that God says, are not good for your life and your conscience becomes damaged and you become past feeling. And we become this way as a society. I mean, it goes without saying that there's no shame. But it's spilling over into the church. I remember growing up, you know, and and I was not brought up in a Christian home. I was brought up in somewhat of a religious home, but not a Christian home. And certainly not a Christian society. But I remember what it was like, even in the late 80s and early 90s, when I was coming of age, what it was like if a man and a woman were living together out of wedlock. If people in, you know, that were you know, a few years ahead did that, I remember what the talk was, not even just amongst the parents, but even amongst the, 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 their peers. I can't believe they're doing that. It was something that was seen as a shame. But today... Not only is it not a shame, we accept it. We say, well, that's just, you know, that's just American culture. That's, it's, people will be people, and, and that's just part of what they do, and that's the choice that they make. And we've, essentially, we become tolerant of it. And even in the church, there's no sense of shame about anything anymore. It's all just, it's okay, it's acceptable. We need to embrace, we need to love. We may not agree, But in the name of tolerance, we must remain silent. We can never make someone feel guilty or feel ashamed of something that they're doing, even though God says that what they're doing is going to do damage to them. And if we allow our minds to be changed, it will soon lead to our behavior following suit. It says in verse 19, the seventh thing there, it says that they have given themselves over unto lasciviousness. King James word, it means lewdness, or licentiousness. And it means the throwing off of all restraint, all sense of wrongdoing. In essence, it means that you've taken to yourself a license to sin. That you've said, it's okay. It's okay. God doesn't care if I live this way. God doesn't care if I behave this way. It's no big deal. Everybody else is doing it. It's the way the society has gone. It's the way the culture has gone. And so therefore, it's okay. And here is my license. I am allowed to do this. And we'll point to, you know, history or we'll point to society or we'll point to brother so-and-so or whatever it is. And it's licentiousness. It's excusing and putting away sin. And it's an embracing of it with no feeling of shame or remorse over what you're doing and the idea is of a person who not only do they no longer battle something internally is this right or wrong 
But they do it, and not just secretly anymore, but now they live it. And I remember that happened to me. As adamant as I was about pot smoking, I became one of the biggest potheads in my whole group of friends. And I was okay. I wore hemp necklace and tie-dye shirt and, you know, all the rest. And no longer was it like a thing of shame, but now it was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm doing it, you know. And that's the idea behind this licentiousness, is that, that, this, is, that this is okay, and I'm doing it in your face, and I don't care what you say, and I don't care what God says. Notice that it says there that they have given themselves over to it. And and it gives us the idea that at one time there was a fight. At one time the conscience was saying that it's not right, it's not there. But they so ignored it and suppressed it and pushed it down. They finally came to the point where they just said, I don't care anymore, I'm giving myself over to this. Completely swallowed by it, not fighting, but given to it. And then he says that where it all ends up is that they will, and this is the eighth thing at the end of verse 19, it says to work all uncleanness with greediness. Uncleanness always speaks of sexual sin. Whether it's in the realm of heterosexual or homosexual or any other kind of you know, perversity or pornography or any other application that you can put under this concept of uncleanness or sexual sin. And what this means is an unrestrained fulfillment of the sexual appetites with no regard to God's boundaries or God's design. And notice that it says, with greediness. Greediness implies that the appetite is never fulfilled. We understand greed in the context of money, right? You look at some of the richest people in the world and they cannot break free of the quest to accumulate more. We understand the feeling in our own hearts. You know, I was just conversating with a brother not too long ago and we were talking about how when we were first married, I remember when me and Georgia were first married and we made $12,000 that year. And, and, you know, we were just eking by, and, and we would hear about someone who made 25000 And we would say, whoa, can you imagine if we made $25,000 a year? The next year, we made 25000 And we were like, this is great. We didn't have any extra money, though. <laughs> but can you imagine if we were like, like you know, those ones that made $50,000, 50000 we, We'd be living like kings if we made $50,000, you know. And then we made $50,000. But we didn't have any extra money. <laughs> and then we saw the people that made $70,000. Whoa, they shop at Men's Warehouse, you know. <laughs> you know. And what could we do, you know? But here's what happens, and you understand the feeling, is that you always think, if I was just at that next level, then I could just settle down, and it would be easy, and we'd be stable and everything. But it doesn't work that way. Because once you make 70, guess what? You see the guy that makes 100. Six figures. But once you make six figures, well, then you see the guy that makes a quarter of a million. Well, I got this far. 
And you see, the thing is, greed, the appetite is never satisfied. You always think that it will. And the thing that you're chasing deceives you into thinking that once you get it, you're going to have a grasp on the aim or the meaning of life. But once you get there, you find that you don't. It's not enough. And the epitome of greed in the context of uncleanness is that the sexual appetite of mankind is never fulfilled. And when you give yourself over to that sin, to operate within that outside of the context of God's boundaries, the appetite is never satisfied, but the giving of yourself to it only creates a larger appetite. uncleanness with greediness. And so that it's no longer good enough to just give myself to, to uncleanness in this arena. Now I've got to make it a little bit stranger or a little bit more sensual or a little better or I need to push the boundaries out just a little bit further because it's just not cutting it anymore the way it's supposed to or the way I thought it would. And ultimately when a society gives themselves over to uncleanness, we see it throughout the Bible, they are not far from where God will step in and say, they have become a harm to themselves and a harm to everybody else. And he's not far from stepping in. So Paul gives us eight characteristics of fallen mankind. But notice the contrast that he gives us in verse 20. He says, but you have not so learned Christ. When you look at Jesus Christ, the one whose name that we bear, we're called Christians. Little Christ, we've been bought by his blood. We've been accepted and redeemed. We've been adopted as his sons and daughters. We've been saved by his grace. We've been placed in his family. We've been given every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We carry the name above all names, the omnipotent, holy, almighty God. We carry his name. And Paul says that when you look at the Gentile world and see everything that they've given themselves to and what they are, And then you hold that in the backdrop as you look at Christ. He said, you have not so learned Christ. They are not the same things. They are as far on opposing ends of a spectrum as as can be the person of Christ and the person of the Gentile, the man who's apart from Christ. They, They don't even belong in the same book, you know. And now he shines the light on us and he's saying that we are no longer to walk as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. If the description of everything that was said of the Gentile is of the aimless life in verses 17 through 19. And then in verse 20 we consider Jesus who in himself is the very aim of life itself. Then that should provoke a response within us. I think of John chapter 1, verse 4. It says of Jesus, it says that in him was life, and that life was the light of men. That he is the aim of life. It's him that life is all about. We were created to bring him pleasure. Our lives are found. Satisfaction is experienced when we're given to that, that goal. That means that end. To glorify him. So if we see this dichotomy, the separation between what we were and who he is, what we used to be and what we are to be, then the only reasonable response that we should have as he gives to us in verse 22, he says, is that you put 
off concerning the former conversation or lifestyle. The old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Can you say amen when you read that word deceitful lusts? Can you consider the things that you used to live for, those passions inside you that drove you, that govern you, and yet they lie to you? They say that you'll be satisfied. They tell you that that's what life is all about. But once you give in to them, you realize that they're chasing after the wind. They're empty. They're deceitful. And he says that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, in verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, there's a great contrast there between what he said back up in verse 17, that the Gentile mind is filled with vanity. But he said that in Christ, now that we belong to him, we're to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. We're to allow his Holy Spirit to influence us now. We're to have his word become the moral compass and the standard by which we live our lives. His truth is to be the plumb line, the measuring tape, whereby we measure our actions and our motives and everything off of. We're to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, no longer living according to the lusts of our flesh or the lusts of our eyes, but now living according to who he is and what he's done for us and what he's doing in us. That's to be what we live according to, renewed in the spirit of our mind. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That we're to live righteously and we're to live holily now. He told us to put off the old man and to put on the new man. And the picture in your mind, it can be, you know, you're there in the morning and you have two sets of clothes lying out on your bed. And in the one is the old man. And the shirt says deceitful lusts on it. And on the other side is the new man, which is created after God in righteousness and true holiness. And every single day, what Paul is telling us is that we have a choice of which set of clothes we're going to put on. The clothes that we used to wear, the things that we used to traffic in, the things that we used to give ourselves to, are the things that are worthy of what we've been called, what we've been given, who we are in the person of Christ. And by the power of God's Holy Spirit, He gives us the ability, if we yield, to every day put on the new man. To live according to what He has given to us. Not by our own strength and what we can produce, but by the power of God's Spirit and what He's provided through the blood and the cross and the promise of everything that we have in the person of Christ Jesus. I think of when Jesus was walking by the pool of Bethesda, and it tells us that there was a man who had been lame in his feet for 38 years. And there was a superstition that once a year, the angel would come and stir up the water. And that the first person that could get into the water when the waters were stirred up would be healed of their infirmity. And for 38 years, this man was lame by the pool of Bethesda, and one day Jesus Christ came to him. And he looked at him and he said, one thing, he said, would you be made whole? Do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be free from this infirmity? 
And the man looked at Jesus and he said, started making excuses. I don't have anyone to put me in the water. I'm, I'm way back here and for 38 years I've been trying to get down there, but I'm, I can't move. And once I try to get down there, and Jesus didn't say, okay, well, let me see if I can you know, pull a few strings and get you down closer to the front and maybe next time. No, no, no. Jesus said, listen, no more excuses. No more stories. Do you want to be made well? And he said, take up your bed and walk and go home. His commandments are his enablements. He gives us the power by the Holy Spirit to do the things that he has called us and told us to do. And here he is telling us, put off the old man according to its deceitful lusts and put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And if we respond to his call, to walk worthy, to walk in holiness as he has called us, then he is also able to supply us with the power of his Holy Spirit to do the thing that he's asking us to do. I want to close by looking at two words back up in verse 17. As Paul began, he said, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. The word testify there is a word that means to solemnly proclaim or to charge sternly. It means that there's weight behind the thing that he is about to say. In essence, Paul is saying, I am dead serious about this. I'm testifying to you. I am charging you before God, putting you to account. And then he says this, that you henceforth or that you no longer walk as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. I wonder if there's anyone that's here tonight and the Holy Spirit would whisper in your ear and say, no longer. The behavior that you've been embracing, the thing that you've perhaps backslidden into, the excuse, the thing that you excuse and justify, the area of your life where you've built yourself a license, where you've removed the parameters and the walls of God's word, and the Holy Spirit tonight would whisper in your ear and just say, no longer. That in light of everything that God has done for us, who he says that we are in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, he desires and deserves that we should live a holy life in this world. That we don't look like and act like, behave like the Gentiles, those that are outside. But that we allow His Holy Spirit to renew our minds and transform the way we live. Not reform our behavior, but transform us from the inside out. It's His will for our lives. It's how we'll bring Him glory. It's what makes the message that we speak from our mouths line up with what people see when they look at our lives. Because if there's a difference between what we say and how we behave, then it confuses the message. And his desire is that our walk would line up with our talk. And so Paul tells us tonight, and Brad, you can come then. The part of this Walk that we have is not only that we walk in unity, but because we walk in unity and we affect one another, 
but the result is that we should also live holy. Let's pray together. Father, we just pray tonight and thank you for your word. We thank you for what you've told us. We thank you for this testimony of Paul, this clear and concise and complete revelation of mankind apart from Christ. And I pray for every person here, including myself, Lord, that we would no longer justify or in the name of tolerance, embrace behaviors that are contrary to your word, but that it would be important to us to live lives that are pleasing to you, that we would find life, that the very aim of life, Lord, that we would find it in bringing you pleasure. All things were created for your glory, to bring you pleasure. For your pleasure, they are and were created. And I pray for each person here tonight, Lord, that we would find our lives in bringing you pleasure and bringing you glory. And I pray for anyone that's here tonight that's still living in the vanity of their mind, who's just meandering aimlessly down a course that doesn't know, doesn't see, doesn't understand. It just takes path after path and finds emptiness and vanity, chasing after the wind. Pray for the person that's here tonight whose margins are fine. They're on shaky ground. That tonight would be the night that they would call out to you, that they would embrace your salvation. And I pray, Father, for those that are saved, those in this place that are struggling that have backslidden, that need to be brought near to you again. Please, Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would speak to us tonight, that you would do your work within us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.